thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. You're listening to a podcast from 702 and Cape Talk. 702 and Cape Talk. The Naked Scientist. Okay, give us a call right now. Remember, it gets very busy. All your questions about the weird and wonderful world of science. Doesn't matter how quirky. In fact, the quirkier, the more interesting it is for Chris and for everyone else. So if you've been wondering about something, now is your chance. Give us a call in Johannesburg on the number 011-883-0702. And Cape Tonians, you can put your questions to the Naked Scientist by giving us a call right now on the number 021-446-0567. You can also tweet me questions at you CBS at Radio 702 or Cape Talk if you don't want to call or SMS them but uh, get get here very very quickly so that we can try and squeeze in your curiosity. Hello Chris Hello Lovely to hear from you again. This particular science story we're going to start with this week um, will be of huge interest to us. Fetal alcohol syndrome is a tragedy in many parts of the world, particularly in South Africa, in provinces like the Northern Cape and the Western Cape especially. I believe that goldfish might be holding potentially a key to fetal alcohol syndrome. Yes. Now, this is a very interesting story because it started not looking at fetal alcohol syndrome, but looking at the practical question of if you are a goldfish and you live in a pond and the pond freezes and you have a layer of ice over the top of the water, which will completely cut off the water from the air, how do you breathe? How do you get oxygen? Mm. And Michael Berenbrink, who's a researcher at the University of Liverpool, have been pondering on this. And he was considering the background to this story, which is people had an idea that goldfish had some kind of clever metabolism that they could do, which may in fact involve alcohol as a way around this. And what he's published in the journal Scientific Reports this week is the genetic analysis of goldfish and their close relatives, the Crucian carp, and worked out how this works. So in a nutshell, what goldfish and Crucian carp do when they're starved of oxygen is they have a second set of metabolic pathways in their body, which means they can make a small amount of energy from glucose and they produce a lot of the waste product, lactacid. And this is the same stuff that... When you go for a workout at the gym, because I know you're very fond of, of running and marathons and the gym, Eusebius. Oh, quite the marathon um, you'll bit, know but the gym only bit, too yes. well. <laughs> yeah, you'll know only too well that burn you get in your muscles, mm. um, which is a build-up of lactic acid. Now, what the goldfish have is a set of enzymes that will convert lactic acid into ethanol. So mm. the fish makes alcohol in its tissues. Mm. And you might say, well, well, why does it want to do that? Well, lactic acid is very toxic. It lowers the pH of your body, and it will do that in a way that can kill you. But ethanol won't. So if you make ethanol, you can then shed the ethanol. It leaches out through the gills of the fish into the pond. So the fish can survive for three or four months completely without oxygen in mm. that environment. Mm. Isn't that incredible? Mm. But what's amazing is I asked Michael Berenbrink, Uh, what the implications of this are. And he said, well, these fish are surviving perfectly healthily at well over the drink-drive limit for every country in the world Mm. with no apparent harm to their body. Now, if a human did that and survived for three or four months with that level of alcohol in its blood, it, it would suffer 
a health catastrophe. Yes. So these fish have clearly got some very clever ways of defending their tissues against the damaging effects of alcohol. And that extends to individuals like developing babies where there may be alcohol exposure during pregnancy. And so they're suggesting that if we can now unpick what these fish do in their livers to protect their livers from the otherwise damaging effects of alcohol, then we may have ways to help humans who have the same problem too. But it's a very interesting evolutionary story because by evolving this behaviour, mm. these animals have gained access to and the ability to persist in environments that will wipe out almost every other form of life, which is why these animals have, be, have been so successful. That is interesting. He did say that, because I said to him, can I drink the contents of my garden <laughs> pond after a strong winter? Is, is this a sort of backyard brewery in the making? And he said, well, actually, no. You'd have to put the goldfish in a glass of water with no oxygen for 200 days just to get a glass that had an alcohol concentration equivalent to a weak beer. Um, but, he said, on the other hand, the fish do have a very high blood alcohol level while this is going on. It's beyond the drink-drive limit, so fish must issue their motor pikes in wintertime. That is fascinating. Well, until we learn how to harness some of the benefits of that research, in the meantime, just don't drink excessively. Roger in Randburg, good morning to you. What is your question for Chris? Uh, morning, uh, receivers. Yeah, I, I'm just wondering, uh, you know, uh, through the, throughout the century, there's been certain uh, numbers of spon people spontaneously combusting. And there was one guy at a disco, he was actually, he actually spontaneously combusted, and all that was left of him was uh, parts of his shoe and, uh, and his heel. Have you any idea what could actually cause this phenomenon? Oh, hello, Roger. Uh, this spontaneous human combustion idea, this has been looked at for a number of years and there are case reports of people being found having apparently burst into flames spontaneously and died um, as a result. So they can't really give an account of what happened, you just find the results. The histories of these things are somewhat, somewhat mysterious and potentially unreliable, but what theories might there be? Well. One idea that people have come up with is that people could spontaneously combust because in their intestines perhaps they have bacteria that will produce um, phosphine gases. These are gases which are a compound of phosphorus which on contact with oxygen will spontaneously ignite. So one suggestion is that these people have a build-up of bowel gas which is, has the potential to spontaneously combust, that they do a fart the fart then ignites, the ignited air then ignites their clothing and because the body contains a lot of fat and fat is a hydrocarbon fuel, perhaps what happens is that the clothing melts and melts fat, the fat then wicks into the clothing and you turn the person into a human candle and they slowly combust that way. Very difficult to argue how that could happen though because yeah. A, the amount of this phosphine gas which comes out in the average fart is tiny. Um, the amount of water in a body that you've got to effectively combust is huge. We're two-thirds water, mm. so that's difficult to explain. Um, but it's certainly true that this can happen in the wilderness because there, there's this idea of will-o'-the-wisp, and if you go to marshlands where there's a lot of anoxic mud, um, in other words, you've got an environment where bacteria thrive in the absence of oxygen in thick mud, occasionally the ground can belch up a bubble of, of phosphine gas and this will spontaneously ignite in contact with the air when it surfaces above the, the marsh mm. and you get these flashes of light at night. And so that's where this idea that perhaps that's responsible for spontaneous human combustion comes from. But on the whole, the numbers of cases are very small and therefore we think that this is an exciting story that's got a bit of mystery and a bit of intrigue. So the story improves in the telling and actually it's not 
be based on very many facts. More likely, these people were smoking. And they just dropped a cigarette on themselves. <laughs> 14 minutes after 10, you've got a question for Chris. Give us a call. doesn't matter what your question is. Uh, the quirkier, the more interesting, the better. We love having him puzzle through some of your curiosities. John in Meerdale, welcome to the show, John. Good morning. How are you people? Very well, thanks. What's your question today? The question is this. Do flowers, especially roses, go into dormancy? Because I find that when at night, when I find that if I water them and I don't wet the leaves, they seem to bloom brighter, better if I do that, uh, water them later at, at night. And I did hear something of a, a professor from... Um, that's saying that flowers go into dormancy at night. Now, I just want to know, is this true? Oh, hello, John. Um, the answer is that plants have a body clock in the same way that you and I have a body clock. Plants keep time. They know exactly what time of day and night it is, and they use it to control their metabolism. This is important because during the day, plants photosynthesize. They're capturing energy from sunlight. They're using it to drive chemical reactions that produce sugar, which is the food that they run on. Now, at nighttime, there is no sunlight, but the plant is still alive and it's still burning energy. It still needs sugar. So it therefore has to work out how fast to run its metabolism at night so that it doesn't run out of sugar by the time the sun comes up and, and starts the photosynthesis process again because if the plant runs out of energy, it, it, it will damage its cells. So plants are able to keep track of time and they, they tether their metabolism to how much energy they have in their cells. So they're continuously doing these pretty complicated mathematical calculations, actually. Plants also, therefore, do a lot of their growing at night and, th and they need, in order to grow, they need a supply of energy, they need a supply of water, and they need the supply of the trace minerals that, that they need for their metabolism. So, yes, plants are very much linked to time, and it certainly matters what the local environment they're in is, such as temperature and the amount of water and humidity around that, that makes favourable conditions to support the growth that they go through. They spend most of their day photosynthesising, not growing so much, uh, and they save energy for the night time when they're going to grow. So it's very plausible that your roses will perform differently at night compared to the day, depending on how you've treated them. Mm, lovely one. Chafiwa, good morning. Hello. Yes, 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 yes. what is your question? Um, I just want to find out here, what actually happens when you suddenly get an electric shock from coming into contact with something that um, is not electric, like your car door, for example? Okay, good question. Chris? Okay, so th this, I think, is what is static electricity. Yes. In other words, you go scooting around on the on the carpet in the office or slide on and off of your office chair and then you touch an electrical sorry, then you touch a conductive surface like a radiator, like a heat pad on the wall, the refrigerator, the cooker, and even your car, and you get this shock and it's painful. Well, the answer is that if you wear shoes which are non-conductive, most shoes are, they're insulating you from the ground. When you rub against surfaces, especially surfaces such as nylon things or plastic and that kind of thing, you can get an asymmetric transfer of charge between you and the object. In other words, you can transfer more charge off of you and onto that object or vice versa, and the result is that you get a net electrical charge. 
And because you're insulated from the environment, air doesn't conduct electricity very well, your shoes don't conduct electricity very well, you don't have an inbuilt human lightning conductor to get the charge into the ground. Therefore, you have this charge difference between the earth around you and your body. And if you touch something conductive, there is now a route to equalise the charge imbalance so you can share the excess of charge you now have on your body with the earth and so there is a current that flows and the flow of current will produce a little bit of pain which is that shock. Now this is most noticeable in cars actually. When your car drives down the road, because it's on rubber wheels, it's insulated from the ground and the car is rubbing against air molecules all the time as it goes along. And as a result you will get a, a potentially a charge build up on the car and when you get out of the car you've been insulated inside the car in what's got a Faraday cage that's because the conductor the metal of the car is all around you you step out of the car you are in contact with the ground you then close the car and because the car door rather because the cars at a different charge potential than you there will be a flow of electricity between the two and that's why you get an electric shock it tends to happen more on warm uh, hot days when the when the air well it tends to happen more in the summer than in the winter Okay, 19 minutes after 10, we'll take a bit of a break and more of your questions for the Naked Scientist. Remember, you can also SMS them 31567 or 31702 or give us a call and just put them directly to Chris Moore on the other side of this. 702 and Cape Talk. The Naked Scientist. Let's take one from the SMS line. Uh, Chris, here's a question for you. Can you please clarify whether there is a relationship between blood types and diet? Um, I'm not really clear what the question's asking. I think they're uh, alluding to these diets that say if you have the following, if you're in this blood group, these are the kind of things you must eat. Yeah, I'm a little bit sceptical of these kind of generalised this is how it is for everyone type mm. claims, especially around diet. There's an enormous amount of of scientifically implausible or unsubstantiated, unevidence-based claims around diet. Lots of people claim to be experts about diet and, and they don't know anything. Um, so you have to be really, really cautious how you interpret these things. People just want to want to make money and the only thing that loses weight with a lot of these diets is your wallet when you part with loads of money to buy expensive <laughs> supplements and books and all this kind of stuff there's a very simple thing with diet and that is that energy in has to equal energy out mm. uh, otherwise your weight will change and mm. if you eat too little and you're burning more calories than you actually are taking in you will lose weight if you eat more calories then you are actually burning off then you will gain weight and as an american friend put it to me mouth hole bigger than asshole you're going to gain weight aren't you <laughs> um and and that's that's the bottom line we're not rewriting the rules of physics and chemistry in the stomachs of of uh, the average person in the population um if you match your exercise to your activity and your food intake your weight will remain stable. Mm. Um, th th that's not to say that there aren't some people who have certain nutritional deficiencies or they live in certain places uh, or they have certain underlying medical conditions and they need to eat certain diets. That's certainly true um, and, and they're a special case. But for the vast majority of people on earth, eating a mixed varied diet which is not in excess of any particular set of micronutrients, which doesn't have uh, too much sugar and doesn't have too much fat in it, but doesn't miss anything, mm. that's the key. And uh, what we, when we talk about f actually eating um, 
five portions of fruit and vegetables a day that's that's a reasonable amount to aim for it's easily achievable to go for five pieces of fruit and vegetables a day and that doesn't mean one pea okay mm. for people who say they went to the burger bar they had a slice of lettuce in the burger does that count as one of their five a day someone else <laughs> i know who said they they pour themselves a very large bottle of a glass of pinot does that count as one of their five a day because it's <laughs> grape juice or at least it started life as grape juice you're not going to make that one work okay this has got to be proper no cheating pour portions um but mm. to be honest there's not much evidence linking blood types and and what you should or shouldn't eat mm. you should just eat a healthy diet sebastian good morning welcome to the show hello sebastian hi there go ahead what's your question yes thanks for taking my call i'm interested in the scientific proof of digital addiction and how social media can influence our brains Okay, Chris, Hello, was that Sebastian. clear enough? Yes, yes, and, and this is a big worry because people are beginning to do the sorts of experiments now on the scale that we need to do them because there are literally billions of people using mobile phones. We think there are eight billion mobile phones on earth now and that means largely smartphones because we've we've uh, finally lost our love affair with the old-fashioned nokia and everyone's in into mm. smartphones <laughs> now um, and they last about five minutes before they go flat unlike those old nokias that used to last forever but what this means is that people are increasingly addicted to or continuously in contact with the digital world and the evidence is it is harming people's well-being perhaps more younger people than older people. That may be because more young people use more of the sorts of platforms that have the potential to cause uh, emotional disquiet, but it seems to affect pretty much representatives from across the social strata. Um, we have got stories now of young people who wake up in the middle of the night just to check their Facebook page or go on Instagram and see what their friends have posted. There's enormous amount of one-upmanship going on on these social media sites where people tend to paint a very artificial picture of their life. Mm. You're not, not going to report on, on Facebook that you just got fired or that you got caught at work cheating on your, on your leave allowance or stealing yes. from the stationery cupboard, but you will put positive things there. So this is creating this idea that everyone else's life could be better than your life and it's making people feel uneasy. Um, and although everyone's doing it, if you actually ask, and people are doing these studies now, if you ask a person, um, does, it, does it make you feel good when your friend is having a happy life? Actually, they say, no, it makes me jealous. <laughs> and so there is a real concern that we're, we're actually creating this permanent state of emotional disquiet, this fear of missing out. And I, I personally don't use Facebook. I, we have a Facebook page for The Naked Scientist, but I'm not on there as a personal user. Mm. Um, so, and, and I do that because I think this is a time black hole, to be honest. I'm so busy already mm. that I don't want to get drawn into another thing that's going to take up more and more of my time. Um, but many people I know do use this. They find them very good for staying in touch with people, but, but there is this potential downside. And so people are quite worried about this. We are beginning to do these sorts of studies, but the thing is, it's a huge human experiment and no one knows yet what the outcome is going to be, but it certainly is affecting human behaviour. People have a lower attention span than they ever have before. People tend to uh, be addicted. They show addictive type behaviours under certain circumstances to use these platforms, and it's encroaching on our social interactions. People don't talk to each other as much. They send them text messages and emails, and when you go out to dinner with people, people will have a phone sitting on the table with you. It's like an invisible dinner partner, and the minute the phone goes yeah. ping, ping, they stop the conversation and start concentrating on their phone which which actually i regard that as exceptionally rude and i would never do that i don't do that but but there, i know many people especially many younger people who who do and it's regarded as perfectly normal but it, it's not part of normal human interaction as we know it
and it could therefore have quite profound differences. And it, it is going to affect the way that your brain develops because your brain is the product of your life experiences and, and your upbringing. And if, and if this sort of behaviour is part of that, it will produce a different brain shape and structure and the way your brain works than, than the person who hasn't been exposed to it. Mm, fascinating. Megan, good morning to you. Thank you for your patience. No problem. Good morning, gentlemen. I trust you well today. Very um, well, my, thank you. My question is, I have a huge disdain for people and this poor planet that we are living on. Um, I don't think this planet has much of a future left for us. My question is, the way we are going, do we actually have much of a chance of getting to Mars because it is so far away and our technology is not nearly what it needs to be? Well, Megan, that's a very important point and an interesting one. Um, we certainly can get things to Mars because there is a, a rover, Curiosity, the size of a small car driving around on Mars right now. 40 years ago, we got people to the moon, or more than 40 years ago, we got people wandering around on the moon. So certainly human uh, endeavour could do it. Whether or not we want to, though, is a different matter. Mars is horrible. Uh, the Earth is wonderful, and Mars is horrible. It's got no atmosphere, and I don't mean in terms of emotional atmosphere, a <laughs> nightclub-type atmosphere, kind of hip and happening place. It's got no atmosphere. It's this thin rind of carbon dioxide around the planet. There's radiation. It's horribly cold. You think Johannesburg in winter's cold. You want to try Mars. Mm. It's horrible. Um, this is not the place that we've evolved to live. And so if we did go there, we'd end up living in a bubble, in a very artificial environment. It would initially be a one-way trip. There's no guarantee you'd be able to get people back. We could almost certainly get people there, I would say. I think we probably would. Um, but would we, would we be healthy? Would we be happy? Because psychological well-being is so important. We're a social species. We thrive on, on change. We thrive on challenge. We thrive on interaction with each other and doing things and getting out and, and immersing ourselves in nature. We wouldn't be able to do that on Mars very easily. And I think people would find it extremely distressing and I think they'd get very claustrophobic and I think mm. they would crave a return to Earth. I think we, we need to invest in this kind of thing because this is our future to explore and spread our boundaries. But at the same time, we need to have better stewardship of the planet we live on. Absolutely. We need to keep the number of the population under control. There are too many humans at the moment, unfortunately, mm. and it's not slowing down. And, the, and we are using enormous numbers of resources and we, we will damage the planet. But, but if, we, if we push ourselves into extinction, the Earth doesn't care. The planet's been here for four and a half billion years. It will be here for another four and a half billion years at least, which is how long the sun's going to live for. It's just whether or not we are part of that equation. The Earth will be here. There will be something living here. Bacteria will almost certainly survive. But whether we do is a different matter. Mm. Chris, thank you so much for all your insights. Much appreciated. It's a pleasure. Thanks, everybody. Bye-bye. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.